Good morning, Door of Hope. I always feel bad interrupting that, honestly. Y'all do it so well, I feel like I'm intruding. It's good to see y'all. Good morning, my name is Ian. For anybody who uh, does not know who I am, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Door of Hope. Good morning, we're glad to, uh, to have you here with us. Um, before, I, uh, before I get serious on you, because I'm going to have to get serious on you, I want to point out that this is the first time I've ever preached, and my mom and my wife both are not here. <laughs> Although, I think my wife's watching at home, so, hey, sweetie, I'll behave myself. Oh, it's good to see you all. It's good to see your faces. Glad you're here with us today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually preaching this morning because... Uh, many, many of you may have heard, many of you may have not heard that um, kind of suddenly Josh's dad passed away earlier this week. And so be praying for him and, and the family. And I mean, Josh has just been, he, he was with us on our staff meeting on Tuesday and I think it was late Tuesday afternoon he got a call from, his, his dad's been living in Alaska and he got a call and said that, that your, that your dad, like this is, this is probably it, your dad's in the hospital and, and it looks like this is gonna be the last time. And so Josh, the, the quickest way to get there was actually to drive from here to Seattle. So he drove to Seattle late, he caught a late flight, he flew to Anchorage and then he drove from Anchorage to another three hours or so to where his dad was and, and then he had to come back. Um, and so he's just, it's just been a whirlwind for him on top of, of course, everything else that has been going on. So just keep him in your prayers. Um, that's the third dad that we've lost in just the last five or six months. Um, so just be praying, praying for him and Darcy and the kids and the family. Um, and so with that said, uh, grab your Bibles, if you will, with me. We're going to be looking at John 9 today, the first few verses of John 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew right in front of you that you can open up and turn to. John chapter 9. Follow with me as we read, I'm going to read the first, the first seven verses here. John 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spit on the ground and he made clay out of the saliva and he rubbed the clay on the man's eyes. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And he went away, and the man washed, and he came back seeing. Please bow your heads with me before we dive into this. Jesus, the message today, the message really every day, every time a preacher preaches, that person is, is speaking beyond beyond himself. And Lord, I, I feel the weight of it, especially today. This is a hard text. And so I pray by the power of your spirit that you would, that you would say what I cannot say, 
that somehow through your mysterious sovereignty you would use my broken, feeble, and insufficient words to communicate what it is to your people that you want them to hear by the power of your spirit, through the agency of your inspired word to the heart of everyone here who is in this room, everyone who is listening online, and even beyond that, Lord Jesus, that your truth, that your, that your love, that your perfection, that your grace, that your embrace would, would hold people dearly and hold them tightly, that they would feel that, that they would be comforted by that, that they would be inspired by that, that they would be transformed by that, by your reality through the word spoken here today. And I cannot do any of that, so Spirit, be here. Be here. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, I've never actually preached on this text before. I've been preaching the Gospel of John for over a year now, but I skipped chapter 9 because someone else actually preached that for me. I think that was right whenever my dad died, and uh, I, was, I was unable to preach that Sunday, and so someone else took it for me. And, and so I, I decided to come back and, and, and take a stab at it. And I got to tell you guys, it's just been, it's just been rolling my bones. And it's caused, me to, it's caused me to pause and reflect a lot, just even in these first seven verses. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it, it kind of blew into flame something that was, that was already kindled in me um, and so I want to come at this, I want to come to one point, but I want to come at it from kind of a couple different, couple different angles, because this is, this is God's inspired word, you know? Zion and I were talking earlier this week during the preacher's meeting, and, and he was giving me, he was sharing with me some of the history of just how much blood was shed and how much turmoil there was to just get a Bible in people's hands, you know? To translate it, to print it, to get it to people, to get it to people who knew how to read and how to comprehend written word and literature. I mean, it's been quite a tumultuous history. And being that this is God's word, that this is a mysterious and beautiful gift from the Lord, it is, it's written by the person, by God the Spirit, through the human agency. And like so many things that, are, that our Christian faith consists of, that is beautiful and it's mysterious. But because that's what it is, because that's what this is, everything is just packed with information, with teaching, with beauty, with, with what it is that God wants to communicate to us. And even in just these seven verses, I was just, I wanted to, I wanted to go further than seven verses, but I had to stop because there's so much here. And I, you, you could, anyone could point out many things in this text but what I, wanna, what I want to highlight, among all the things that could be highlighted, I want to highlight something here that's, that's deeply troubling to us as human beings. And the reason why I, why I want to do this is I was prayerfully considering this text this, over this last week and thinking about what it is, what it is that people need to hear. And, may, and maybe specifically the church in Portland, Oregon, what do we need to hear? What do we need to receive from God's word to help transform our minds because this is what I this is what I want to do this this text fed right into something that I've been thinking about over the last couple of months and that is why am I why am I here and any of you that know me any any of you who have been here for a while know that for my entire adult life I've been a blue-collared knuckle-busting glass worker I've worked with glass since 2006 and some in some way or form 
just up until this last year when I became a full-time pastor. And I've had these moments where I've paused and, and, and been like, why, why am I here? What do I want to achieve? Why do I not just go back to glass cutting? I could stay out of everybody's business. I could leave people alone. People would leave me alone and I could just live my life. And this text reminds me of why I want to be a pastor. And the reason why I want to be a pastor is because I want you guys to fall in love with the person Jesus Christ. When life is going well, when life is going hard, when it's not going well, when it maybe it's even just a straight up tragedy, I want people to not lose their grip on who Jesus Christ is really. And this text points us to that because this text deals with something that is tremendously difficult. This text brings to the surface something that causes deep anguish and, ra I mean, rage. Rage. This, is, this text brings to light something that people are very upset about. And really, within, as far as I can tell, within the secular world, there's no consensus about whatsoever. And I want to go straight there because the Bible goes straight there. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that God in his sovereignty gave us, gave us a book that does not skirt away from the hard things. I don't have to come up here and make something up. Because we're dealing with eternity, we're dealing with human existence, and, and it's, you know, I grew up in a, in a church where it was kind of cute and funny all the time, and that's, that's okay, you, you can have some of that, but we are dealing with gravely serious issues here. We are dealing with life and death, and this text slaps us right in the mouth with something that causes deep, deep sorrow in the hearts of human beings every day. It deals with suffering. It deals with human suffering. Right from the very first verse, it deals with human suffering, and not just human suffering, but even suffering of children. It's really not a laughing matter, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm grieved by this text because on one hand, it is, if, you, if you plumb the depths of it, it it's, there's so much room for sorrow. There's so much room here for sadness. And simultaneously, there's so much room for joy. There's so much room for joyous worship. There's so much here to be thankful for, to bow your head and to fall on your knees and to worship King Jesus because of what's right here in just these first seven verses. Because this is God's word and not a single written word in here. Not one dot, not one iota was by accident. Not one dot or iota is impetuous or frivolous. Every, every word is God speaking to us. And we see Jesus' compassion for human beings from the very first verse. If you consider very, the very first verse of chapter 9, if you consider what was taking place at the very tail end of chapter eight. Chapter eight is all full of controversy. There's people that are, that are coming against Jesus, they're arguing with him, they're bickering with him, they're trying to discredit him, and then it, it escalates all the way to the very end. If you look at chapter eight, verse 59, the, the, last, the last verse of chapter eight, it says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So you <laughs> think about that. Jesus is on the run. You know, I mean, there's people that are, have picked up stones with the intention of killing him. And he 
he went out from the temple. He's, he's, he's getting away from these guys that have stones ready to kill him with. And it doesn't, it's not real clear about how much time passes here, but it doesn't seem like it's much. He goes out of the temple, and then he passed, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Even in the heat, I mean, look at how much Jesus is paying attention to you. Look at how much Jesus is paying attention to people. He's got, he's got guys after him with stones, and he pauses to consider this guy that nobody else is considering, this man who is blind from birth. And not only does Jesus just see him, but he, he must stop. I mean, he must stare at this guy because the disciples see that Jesus is seeing this guy. They take note of it. He's not worried about these stones being thrown at him anymore. He's not worried about his own safety and well-being. The God of the universe manifests to us in human flesh, shows us what he is like, even here. In the midst of getting away from people who want him dead, he thinks of the least of these. He sees a guy who's blind and been blind from birth, and he stops, and the disciples see it. And they say to him, Rabbi, who has sinned that, that this man has been born blind, him or his parents? Now, I don't want to take a ton of time on this, but it is worth making note of. This is, gives us insight to what the disciples thought about human suffering, that it was a direct result of a specific sin that someone had committed. And we know that that can sometimes be true. If I, if I get caught breaking into somebody's house and they hit me in the head with a, I don't know, a pool stick, then I kind of had that coming. Like that was, a, that was an injury, that suffering that was directly resulted from a choice that I had made. But we know that that's not always the case. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead right then on the spot. A direct result of their sin. But we also have the book of Job. And Job is interesting because it's said that he was righteous above all the people in the land, yet he suffered more than any of them. And so suffering can be a direct result of a specific sin that we have committed. It can be punitive, but it also is just the way that the world is. In general, all suffering does come because of sin. Even if it's not a direct sin that you personally commit, we do live in a fallen world because we live in a sinful world. And so in a generalized sense, sure, we suffer because of sin. But Jesus doesn't even go there with these guys. He doesn't even, he doesn't even give them that. They ask this question of, of cause. What caused this man's blindness? Was it, was it sin from his, from his mother and father or was it sin from him? And I, I'll say one last thing just because this is, this is kind of interesting. But there actually was a debate among scholars at that time that whether or not a baby could sin in the womb and the proof text that was used was in Genesis chapter 25 where Rebecca is pregnant with the twins and it says that the twins were kicking against each other in the womb. And so these theologians with their corn pipes and I don't know, whatever, they had just too much time to think. They're like, see, you can sit in the womb. I, whatever, I'm not even gonna go there. Jesus is like, that's not the point, guys. Stop, I'm not gonna sit here and debate this with you. And he gives them, he gives them more than the cause. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't take time on the cause, but he, he takes time on the purpose. Never mind the cause, he underlines the purpose. And this is where, this is, this is where I want to be clear and I want to be soft because what Jesus says here is processed by different people differently. The way that I read this text, 
the way that it makes me feel, the things that come to mind when I read Jesus' response is likely not the way that you feel and the things that you think when you read it. And that's why I pray that the Spirit would communicate to you personally in a way that you need. What Jesus says here is that it was not this man's parents nor him that sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. This man's blindness is not caused by his parents' sin. It's not caused by his sin. This man's blindness is so that the works of God might be manifested in him. And people stop right there and they go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean God made this man blind? On purpose? What if that's what it means? Is God sovereign? Did God have the ability and the power or the authority to prevent this man's blindness? You betcha, he absolutely did. He permitted this man's blindness. He let him be born blind so that, the man, so that the works of God might be manifested in him. And people cannot stand this idea. And I will allow that there is mystery here. I don't know the counsel of God. I don't know how he makes decisions. It's really, a lot of it's none of my business. There are things here that are beyond human comprehension, so we just have to bow and say, yes, king. I don't, I don't know all of the inner workings of the inner of the counsel of God. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so this text kind of puts you into a corner. It put me in a corner. Because we have to come to a point here where we just trust whatever God does. How are we doing with that? We look around at the world, we see suffering, we see unjust suffering, we see murder, we see crime, we see horrible things happen, and one of the biggest complaints against the Christian faith is people saying, how could a good God allow suffering? And my response is, I, I don't have all the answers to that, but what I know is that God is good. Because I think that we equate, we see suffering and we go, okay, suffering is synonymous with God is cruel or he's indifferent, or he's not paying attention, or he just is maybe malevolent and intentionally burning us with his magnifying glass like ants. And friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And so my, what I wanna do as a, as a Christian, whether I am here or whether I am at the glass shop doing what I used to do, I want to tell people, listen, God is good, he is good, he is kind, he is loving, and the things that we don't understand, he has a purpose for. He has a purpose in the pain. He has a purpose in the suffering. Because if you take that away and say, well, it's all just happenstance. It doesn't mean anything. It's coincidental. Sometimes you're born blind. Sometimes you aren't. That might make you feel better, but you eviscerate any purpose in it being the way that it is. You eviscerate this man's blindness, that it has any, any redemptive quality, any hope or any purpose whatsoever. And Jesus says that this man's blindness does have a purpose. There is a reason for it, and it's good. And I don't know, I, don't, I can't say for sure why. I, this is, I mean, the, the, the most recent suffering in my life was that one of my best friends and my dad died three weeks apart from one another. My dad died just a few days before his 69th birthday and my friend Ben died when he was 37 years old and he left behind two little girls under the age of 10. I don't know why that happened, but I know that it's not because God's a jerk. And that's what I want you guys to understand this text doesn't make sense this text will not work this is why it puts you in a corner this text won't make sense if Yahweh is not your king 
This text will not make sense if you do not trust the Lord. This text will not make sense if he is not your God and something else is. This, this text is serious. This man was born blind. Why? And Jesus says, so that the works of God might be manifest in him. And friends, Jesus works this way. One of the most powerful chapters in John's gospel that, that I have come across over the, this last year plus of teaching, it was John chapter 11, because John chapter 11 is another chapter where you could read it and it could make you mad. In John chapter 11, Lazarus is, is raised from the dead, but in the very beginning of the chapter, I'm gonna spend a good bit of time here in John chapter 11 because I, I want us to know that Jesus has it figured out and what he has in conclusion is redemption and salvation and beauty and the turmoil that we go through on the way there, do not let that, do not let the devil convince you that God has abandoned you because the road to get to, to the road through life here on earth is hard do not let the devil convince you of that that is a that is a lie of hell that because things here are hard sometimes awful that God's standing back not paying attention to you that is a lie I want you guys to know that in your bones that God is good John chapter 11 Jesus is with his disciples and a messenger comes from Bethany and says, Jesus, the one that you love is sick, meaning Lazarus. Now Lazarus was one of Jesus' personal friends, not just some no-named follower like so many other people. He was somebody that Jesus had a personal relationship with and Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And this messenger comes and he says, he says Jesus, the one that you love is sick and Jesus says, this illness does not end in death. That's what Jesus says. This illness does not end in death. Jesus is a couple miles north of where Lazarus is in Bethany where he's sick. And it says that, Jesus says that this does not end in death. And then it says that because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he stayed where he was two extra days. Now this is the God of the universe who holds the entire cosmos up by the, by the word of his power. He has spoken healing from 15 miles away and healed. He's raised people from the dead. He has, he has completely banished illness and disease from people's bodies. He hears that one of his own personal friends is sick and he doesn't do anything and he stays put. We would expect, we would think that Jesus would be running down to Bethany to get there as quick as he possibly could or at the very least he could just snap his fingers and the illness would be gone and he doesn't do that and that makes us mad that doesn't make any sense to us friends Jesus is good he is wise he is in control he knows what he's doing and the way that this story plays out proves it he said this isn't going to end in death and then he stayed two days and then he goes he uses language with his disciples and says okay well Lazarus has fallen asleep so let's go down to Bethany and wake him up and his disciples are like now there was beef down in that area people again were looking to kill Jesus and arrest his disciples and now Jesus is talking about going back down into Bethany just to, ra just to wake Lazarus up can you feel the tension can you feel the, the shaking Jesus by the collar and saying Lord what are you do why are we going to go back there to wake him up let him sleep. If he's sick, he's sleeping, he'll get better. And so Jesus then uses direct language and says, Lazarus is dead. Verse 14. A messenger comes and says, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, this doesn't end in death. A couple days later, Lazarus is sleeping. 
Let's go wake him up. No, 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 let's not wake him up because he'll wake up on his own. He's an adult. No, Lazarus is dead. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster? Can you imagine the roller coaster emotionally that his sisters went through? Knowing Jesus personally, knowing that Jesus could do something and then watching your brother die. It's fair. Can we say that it's fair to say, Lord, what are you doing? It's fair. But do not let, you, let that convince you that he's either A, not doing anything, or B, that he's doing something wrong. He does nothing wrong. He does nothing that's imperfect. Remember that always. He's a good king. He's a good shepherd. He makes his way down to Bethany, and, his, and, and Lazarus' sisters do individually come to him, and they fall at, their feet, at, his, at his feet. And I, and I want to point that out, because Mary and Martha both get a lot of grief from commentators and theologians and, and, and those types because, oh, they had, they had weak faith, they were lacking. And it's like, listen, guys, they're human beings who are dealing with grief. And they took that frustration. They took probably anger, right? Probably anger, frustration, confusion. And they didn't run away from Jesus with that. They ran to him. And both of them said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And if you know the story, you know that as, as it goes, Jesus goes to the tomb. He weeps there. He sees the, the tears of the people and he weeps because he's human. We have a sympathetic high priest. He has felt what we feel. He feels what we feel. He's aware of it. He's not cold, removed, mechanical, and indifferent. And, and he feels our suffering. He hates it. And he tells them, remove the stone. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. There was a stone in front of the opening of the tomb. Jesus says, get that out of the way. And he calls into the blackness. He calls into the dark hole. Lazarus come out and Lazarus alive and well and whole comes out of the tomb. This illness does not end in death. Now we know that that, that miracle caused people to get saved from their sins and to have eternal life. Jesus has an eternal perspective. Remember that. He's thinking eternally. He's concerned about the eternal. He says to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, do not fear those who can kill the body and then have nothing more they can do to you. Fear him. He says, I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed you has the authority and the power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Jesus has an eternal perspective and he's willing to do things that are hard easily misunderstood and uncomfortable to push people towards that reality to push people towards thinking about eternity and not right now immediate corporeal physical existence that is an act of grace and I am thankful that he is willing to inflict some amount of pain to get us to wake up and to think past the here and the now to stop looking at our belly button and go wow we live on an earth we're gonna we are going to die soon and Jesus is and Jesus says do not fear little flock Luke chapter 12 do not fear it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom the God who upholds the universe is so kind that it's his pleasure it pleases him to welcome you into his eternal home that is what Jesus is up to. Luke 19, 10 says of, of Jesus says of himself, he says, the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So friends, when we go through blindness, disease, death, horrible things that happen on earth, 
This is, these are the things that we need to be renewing our mind with. Whenever Paul writes in, in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be renewing our mind with. Jesus is good, he is wise, he is in control. That miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't died, right? And his death was hard. But Jesus knew what was going to happen and he raised him from the dead. But even beyond that, even beyond Lazarus, one man being raised from the dead, that miracle, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that was very public. A lot of people saw that go down and a bunch of people went and snitched on Jesus, which is incredible. They saw Lazarus rise from the dead and they turned around, they went right to the religious authorities and they said, here he is, here's what he just did, we need to, we need to get this figured out. And they moved away. The end of chapter eight, they picked up rocks to throw at them. They moved away from this impetuous mob justice, mob violence thing. Never mind this like, just fly by the seat of our pants, we're gonna get them in the street. They actually got organized and they called together the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Supreme Court of the day. And they said, let's get a warrant out for this guy. Let's actually get organized and we're gonna take this guy down legally. Verse 57, and the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where he was was to report it so that they might come and seize him. They put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest and then made you an accessory to a crime if you knew where he was and kept it quiet. Jesus became a legitimate outlaw. We covered this in the evening service a couple months back. You could go listen to it in depth if you want. It's under the title Gangster of Love because Jesus became an outlaw for loving people. And so what that means, it got organized. We're gonna get this guy, we're going to arrest him, we're going to put him to death. Which means that Lazarus' resurrection not only brought salvation to the people who were there immediately in that moment, who witnessed that, who witnessed that miracle, but also because that miracle led to him being arrested and being killed, that led to his resurrection three days later, which leads to salvation to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him as their Lord and King. Jesus knew this. He let Lazarus die, but he knew what the plan was. He knew that Lazarus was gonna be raised from the dead, and he knew that this resurrection from the dead of Lazarus was gonna to lead to his own persecution and death and his resurrection, which is the punishment for our sins on the cross and the resurrection three days later for our justification. Friends, this is not something that we can just hear about for half an hour or 45 minutes, or if I had my way, we'd be here for an hour and a half and then got it good going on with our day. We've got to go home with this. We've got to, you've got to take this home and think about it, meditate on it day and night. Transform your mind, renew your mind with this beautiful King Jesus. This is your, this is your boss. This is the guy who's taking care of the universe. He is wise and he is good. Do not let the devil take suffering and equate that with he's not good, that he's not paying attention. That's a lie. Look at how good he is. Look at his wisdom. And in this moment, the works of God being manifest in this blind man, we, we see in verse seven that he went back, he, came, he went and he came back seeing. In that, in that moment, there was an immediate healing of his blindness. And as much as we would love that, friends, that's often not our story, is it? 
that's often not the way that it goes for us. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of a thorn that he has in the flesh and that he prayed earnestly three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from the flesh. And then I love that we're not told what the thorn is because the thorn could be anything. What's your thorn? We all have thorns. The Lord responded to Paul, I'm not gonna take this thorn away but my grace is sufficient for you. Friends, can we trust him? Can we trust him? I got a text message at like three o'clock in the morning from a friend of mine, and he was, he was concerned about this. He didn't, he's, I don't think he's ever been to Door of Hope. I don't think he's ever heard me preach. I, I, he doesn't know that we're going through John. He doesn't know that I was looking at John 9. He just, on his own, he texted me, and he said, he said, how, he said I'm concerned about how comfortable we are in, in North America and if that comfort ever got rattled, how many of us would be like, oh, well, you know what? Going to church is dangerous. I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> is that a Bible on your desk? Nope. Persecution. That, nope. That's not a Bible. Let me keep my job. Let me keep my place. Let me keep my comfort. How many of us would do that? I, I don't know, but I suspect that some of us would. We're so comfortable that it's easy to be Christians, you know? And praise God for that blessing. Praise God we live in a place where we're comfortable. But whenever things get shaken up, what, I mean, how, how, how many years do you think? I mean, put yourself in the, in the shoes of this guy's parents. How many times did they cry out, why was our son born blind? I mean, that's a real question. So that the works of God might be manifest in him. And we know that not only did he receive his sight, and maybe I'll start studying this, and the next time I preach a Sunday morning, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get here, but... In verse 38, he becomes a Christian. He gets thrown out of the temple for defending the name of Jesus, and then Jesus comes later and again finds him. And it says that in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. This guy got saved. This guy is in heaven right now. Probably pretty stoked that his blindness led him to having this experience with Jesus. There's always a purpose. And I may not be able to tell you what the purpose is. And you know what? The purpose may not manifest itself here in your lifetime on earth. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 make us a great promise. Paul writes there. Paul, by the way, someone who was afflicted with multiple, multiple troubles. <laughs> Physical, emotional. He was in prison. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned nearly to death on more than one occasion. I mean, here's a guy who knows what he's talking about. He's not sitting in his study going through the commentaries of old dead people and regurgitating whatever it is that he learned. I mean, he was really living this out. And he said that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us. That's an active verb, is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Friends, believe that. Believe it. I don't know exactly what my dad's death is supposed to achieve. But I can tell you already that I saw death. Whenever Josh called me and told me that his dad had passed and that Josh, praise God, he had made it there in time to, to, to be with his dad. As he passed, he was looking into his dad's eyes and, he, and what Josh said to me was something beautiful. He said, I, I saw death. You know, I really saw it. I watched it happen and it, it, it helped get rid of the fear that I have of it. I'm less afraid of death now because I, I saw it happen. And I, and I have to say yes and amen to that. My dad died in my arms. He died right in front of me while I was holding on to him. 
I watched it and I was so, I mean, I loved my dad. I had a good relationship with my dad. My dad dying was a horrible thing to experience. And thinking about it, you know, thinking about one day I'm going to have to watch my dad die. Oh my gosh, what's that going to do to me? It's going to tear me up. Well, it happened. And you know what? I saw it and I'm not afraid of it anymore. It's made me even more a man of God because I saw the worst thing that could possibly happen. My dad in, in agonizing pain, they call it comfort care. What that means is they keep you stoned until you die. They had him on a morphine drip that was rose, wild, how much morphine they were pumping into him. And when he took his last breath, Oh, it was so awful, but when he took his last breath, I knew that this light and momentary affliction had been preparing for him a weight of glory that is beyond comprehension. Praise God. Dad's not only not in pain anymore, but he's in heaven. It's perfect. And so my dad's death actually not only removed my fear of death, but it actually made me love Jesus all that much more because dad died, he's in heaven. That makes me stoked. We're gonna be right behind him in a few years, I'm gonna be dead, and then I'm gonna be with my dad, and that's all because of what Jesus did. Praise God, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. My dad's death led to worship of Jesus. Talk about a paradox. But that's how good Jesus is, and that's how, that's how comprehensive his work has been. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. My dad took his last breath. I closed his eyes myself, but his eyes were already looking upon Jesus. Believe that, friends. And this is what Jesus says to his boys that he's going to do. The works are going to be manifest, and the works of God are going to be manifested in this man. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is going to do the works of God because he is God, and the works that God wants done get done for sure. And Jesus came to do work while it is day. That includes the healing of this man's blindness, but it also ultimately includes healing from sin. Jesus' work was a work of rescue. And he came to do it while he had, while he's, while he's here, he is the light of the world. We must work the works of him while it is day. Jesus says things like this a lot in the Gospel of John. And it's, it's sort of a multifaceted meaning. But what it boils down to is Christians, we have only so much time to get to work. This is not our home. Thank you, Jesus. This is not our home. We are at work here to proclaim the gospel because it is the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for everybody. Preach the gospel. Friends, let's get busy. Let's get saved and behaved. Let's not muddle around with sin. It's a waste of time. Get to know your Bibles. Get to know the living Christ here through his written word by the power of God the Spirit. And tell people about this Jesus because people have a wrong idea about who Jesus is. I did for years. I thought he was a jerk. At best, I thought he just wasn't paying attention to us and that is false. While it is daylight, we've got to get to work. And while it is daylight, you can get saved. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and get saved for eternity from, from wrath and from punishment, separated from God and from others for all of eternity. You can do that if you have breath in your lungs. Paul says 
in his letter to the Corinthians that this is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Today is the day of salvation. Friends, if you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm going to sow my wild oats and have a lot of corporeal fun. And then whenever I'm old and gray, then I'll get serious about my life. My friend Ben died at 37. Suddenly. Didn't see it coming. He woke up on a Tuesday morning thinking he was going to see Wednesday morning and he did not. Stop playing around. Jesus is saying, come. If you're addicted, come. If you're hurt, come. If you're mad, come. That's what the Psalms are all about. People crying out in anger and confusion, but, but they're crying out to the Lord. Friends, you've not out God's grace. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how filthy or, or awful you might think you are. I don't care if you're super proud and you think that, well, I've earned my way into heaven. Friends, come to Jesus. He has taken all of it for you. He has taken the punishment. He has lived the life that you were meant to live, so the pressure's off. It's a free gift of salvation. And in my experience, 35 years old, living in Portland, the two things that I see getting in the way of that most common are I'm too filthy for Christ. The people that were nailing him to the cross, Jesus cried out, forgive them, they know not what they do. He loves you. Whatever sins you have committed, his blood covers. His mercy is like himself. It is infinite. Or people think, I don't need him. I don't need him. I don't need his righteousness. Friends, we're sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus came to rescue us from that. While it is day, he has work to do. He rescues us, he, and he rescues us from suffering. He rescues us from eternal suffering. He rescues us from eternal pain by suffering, by enduring pain, by going to the cross. He heals ultimately by being wounded. The cross was, was no walk in the park. It is true that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, but the cross was agonizing to him, not only physically, but also spiritually. It was emotionally. He, he, he felt some sort of rift between the eternal Godhead, which is there's not a, an intellect in all of human history that could understand that. But if any of you know what it's like to lose a dear loved one, how painful that is, what Jesus experienced on the cross was infinitely more so that you would not have to experience that. He rescues you from suffering by himself enduring suffering. This is the kind of king that he is. This is the kind of grace that he has. This is how good he is. May we spend the rest of our lives pursuing and learning of that goodness and being transformed by it, huh? In John chapter 13, Jesus is at a table with his disciples, one of whom is Judas. And the gospel writer John points out that when Judas left that room to betray Jesus, he says, and it was night. And he's not just telling us what time of day it is. He was telling us that this light that Jesus is talking about, we got to work while there is light, that that light was snuffing out. It was, that, was per, that was it for Judas. 
He went, in and it, he went out and it was night forever for him. And for an hour, Jesus calls it the hour, this hour of darkness is, is yours, he says in Luke's gospel. Darkness seemed to win. Jesus was beaten, he was flogged, he had chunks of his beard ripped out, he had his back lacerated open. History tells us that the, the whipping from the cat of nine tails would often leave somebody with their internal organs falling out from behind them because their back was ripped so aggressively. And he went to the cross and he died. It was night. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness seemed to win. Jesus went into that night. He went into that death. He went into that tomb. As the ultimate Lazarus, he came out shining so that you could too. So that everything that is painful, everything that is awful and sad doesn't get the last word. Death has been swallowed up in victory, the Bible says. Hebrews tells us that Jesus went to the cross and he defeated the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Death does not have the final word because Jesus is that good. Suffering does not have the final word because Jesus is that good. Suffering actually can only be used to increase your eternal felicity and joy because Jesus is that good. How does it work? I don't really know. But God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom tells us so. I know for the Bible tells me so, that I mean, maybe the greatest song in all history. A kid can sing it and adults wrap their minds around it for the rest of their lives. Jesus is good, Jesus loves you. Suffering, sickness, it's a foolish thing to look at those, to look at those and to abandon God because of them. He can use them, he has a purpose. You're not suffering for no reason. It's a good bargain. We, we live this life but we have eternity where all of this goes away. You know somebody, I'll close out with just these last few words. Somebody, like the disciples, they could look at Jesus with his back lacerated open and his, feet be his face beaten beyond human recognition, pinned to a cross. People could look at that and say, well, who sinned that this man was born blind? You could look at Jesus and say, who sinned so that this man is suffering? Who sinned so that this man is dying? I did. You did. We did. We sinned, and that's why this man is dying. And he went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to face the punishment of that because he was taking it in that exact moment. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you will not be punished for your sins because Jesus was punished for you. And that means that we have every reason to, out of an attitude of gratitude and of joy, to obey him and to get to work while it is, while it is light. The last thing Jesus said before he left in Matthew 28 was to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We have every reason to obey his commands out of, out of love. Who sinned so that this man is dying? I did. And I'm never gonna taste the, the repercussions of that because he took it for me. I'm gonna do what this guy says in word, thought, and deed as best as I can and I fail daily but his grace is new every morning. Friends, Jesus loves you. 
If you're here this morning and you're on the fence, come talk to me. Turn to your neighbor, ask for prayer. Put your faith in Jesus and get saved today. And if you are saved, then weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a family, friends. We get to walk through this, this next season with Josh as he just lost his dad. You guys have been walking with me as I lost mine. This is the future that we have waiting for us. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 4. All this blindness, all this pain, all this suffering, all this death. Friends, remember, remember this. Remember this description. Revelation 21, verse 4. This is the reality that Jesus opens up for all of us because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any crying or weeping or pain. For these things have passed away. Friends, that's what we have to look forward to. That is the God that we serve. This is what he has prepared for us. So let's serve him and tell people about this. And when, when the hard things of life touch us, it's okay to cry, it's okay to feel it, it's okay to mourn, it is, it's good, it's healthy. But friends, do not let the devil turn that into an opportunity to convince you to turn your back on God. That's a tragedy. That's a shame. Jesus suffered so that our suffering will come to an end. He's that good. Amen? Amen. Bow your head with me. Jesus, thank you for your cross. Thank you for the comprehensive work that you have done. Like the song that we just sang a little while ago, Give Me Jesus. Give me Jesus. We might be afflicted. We might come under tribulation and pain and persecution. Our health will deteriorate. Families and friendships will fall apart either by death or by division. We're not promised an easy life. We're actually promised the opposite. Jesus, you're, you yourself said that in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, you are that good. You've overcome the world. We have a promised inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit alive inside of us. We have salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for making us, causing us to be born again. And I pray that you move by the power of your spirit into the hearts of those who are here today, the, the hearts of those who are hurting, the hearts of those who are raising children and are stressed and are tired, hearts of, the hearts of those who are having problems with, with job, with finance. Whatever it may be, Lord, you are sufficient. You're a good king. You are the balm that we need. Give me Jesus. And may the things that, that pelt us, may the things that try to hurt us turn our hearts to worship and turn our hearts to trust you even more. This ship is sinking, Lord, so help us to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. We have a home that is not here. We have a home that is guaranteed. We have a home that we're heading towards. Thank you for that gift, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.